About three weeks ago, we started this series on the Psalms of Ascent. These Psalms, these 15 of them, that we believe were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem three times each year. And it was a, a walk of worship, a pilgrimage of worship. And these songs, these psalms, would have been an expression of worship along the way. So both an expression of what was in their heart and what they believed about God, but also a preparation for the time of worship with God. The Appalachian Trail is about 2,200 miles long. Uh, for the Schusters, that's 3,500 kilometers. So just to, there you go. 2,200 miles long. And roughly around 10 years ago, uh, I was able to fulfill a lifelong dream, what, what I would consider to be probably one of my greatest accomplishments in my life. Uh, after years of preparation and training and getting ready for the experience, I was able to finally meet somebody that walked the Appalachian Trail. So I was, it was, it was, a, it was really meaningful. It's, it was hard work. Uh, but my friend Steve walked the whole trail. Yeah, I didn't. I wouldn't want to. Not in a million years. I have hiked the Appalachian Trail for about 10 minutes. That was my claim to fame uh, in Pennsylvania. It was beautiful. I heard the rest of it's just like it. That was enough for me. But my friend Steve hiked the whole thing one summer. Uh, and I sat down with him and talked with him, actually kind of interviewed him. I was using his experience to prepare for a lesson I was teaching to the youth at that time when I was, I was a youth pastor in Indiana. And I wanted to make some connections between what he went through and our walk with Christ. And it was a very interesting experience. And he told me about the sights and the scenic overlooks and, and just the experience of walking with people. He talked about how much he had to carry, how far he had to walk each day, the number of calories. That really blew me away. The number of calories they have to consume each day. It's like three or four times the normal amount that any human being should consume on a given day. But they're just burning through it. And the guy came home. He was already skinny. He came home skinnier, even after eating that many calories every single day. It was fascinating. And so I asked him at one point, what was the most difficult part of the experience? And I was expecting weather, bad weather, feeling wet, uh, feeling hungry, maybe the bugs, uh, the heat, the, the mountains. I, I was expecting something physical. And he said, you know, honestly, one of the hardest things to push through was the boredom. And I looked at him and thought, boredom? It's the Appalachian Trail. It's beautiful. He said, you don't understand. There are moments of absolute beauty. He said, those are great days. He said, there are moments of, of mountains to be climbed, and, and you would push yourself to get through those. There are times that you felt tired, and you would push yourself to get through that. But what a lot of people don't understand is there are many, many parts along the trail where you're just walking on an ugly trail. And it's not exciting. He said, it's hard. Those were the days that were the hardest. You didn't get a sense that you were getting anywhere to something wonderful up ahead. You didn't get a sense of accomplishment. You were just walking. He said those were some of the most difficult to keep going. I think often it's the same way as we're following Christ. In our times of crisis, in our moments of struggle, when, when we're presented with an opportunity or, or a struggle that's come into our lives, we can gather people around us and they're praying for us and we're pushing through. It's sort of like climbing that mountain. It's hard, don't get me wrong. But there's sort of a, a built-in push. Keep going, stay faithful. 
There are mountaintop experiences. Maybe we have God do something wonderful in our lives. He, he gives us a, a new child. He gives us a new job. He blesses someone or heals someone or we have a wonderful worship experience or a conference or something like that. It's just, woohoo! God is doing amazing things. But let's face it, much of the Christian life is lived on a trail that doesn't look all that exciting. And much of the Christian obedience is simply trusting Christ by putting one foot in front of the other. And it's hard. I've called this series A Long Obedience in the same direction. I've taken that from a book by Eugene Peterson. He stole it from Frederick Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche uh, who used it to really describe the fact that we don't need God anymore. And Peterson took it to describe the Psalms of Ascent, to say, no, what we need is a focus on God and to walk together A long obedience in the same direction. So what is it that keeps us going day after day? What is it in those days that we wake up and it seems like there's nothing exciting, there's nothing to shoot for, there's nothing going on? What is it that causes us to put one foot in front of the other? I'd like to suggest that it's worship. Worship. We have a view as Christians, I think, often, maybe not you, but often we have this view that worship is what we do on Sunday mornings. We come together for a worship service. And that's true. And we sing songs and we have prayers and we have a sermon or we go to Sunday school and that's worship. And so we do our worship on Sunday mornings and then after church we check out and worship is over. That's not the way the Bible portrays worship. Worship is day in and day out living in conscious recognition that God is present with us and is powerfully at work. Worship tells us that every moment, every one of those dull steps that we might think are not important, every single one is an opportunity to worship God. When the phone rings, it's an opportunity to demonstrate the love and the grace and the mercy that God has demonstrated to us through Jesus Christ to the person on the other end of the phone. When you go into work, it's an opportunity for you to demonstrate faithfulness and to live out the gospel. That's worship. Students, if you're in school, it's an opportunity when you have homework, when you have a paper, a test, say, I'm going to use the brain that God has given me to worship and glorify Him. It's worship. Every step is an opportunity for worship. So let me read Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord. According to the statute given to Israel, there stands the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. I want to start by talking about the joy of worship. The joy of worship. Don't raise your hand, okay? But how many of you woke up this morning thinking, I get to go to worship! This is the best thing ever! I'm guessing there weren't many of my kids that woke up that way. Okay? I'm not going to name names. And maybe some of you, too, it's like, ah. Okay, it's Sunday, got to do the Sunday thing, punch the clock, go in, do the worship thing, keep so-and-so happy so I can go on about my life. 
and worship can become a drudgery. But Scripture describes a joy in worship. And it starts at the end of verse 1 there. Let us go to the house of the Lord. Part of the joy of worship is an understanding that we are going to be in the very presence of God. Worship is a recognition that God is present. If you were in Sunday school this morning, uh, Dan Doucette talked about the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere. In Israel, the manifestation of God's presence was in the temple, or earlier the tabernacle. And so three times a year, they would go up specifically to that location to be in the presence of God and to worship. But worship is focused on God. This is important. They were walking along, and I believe this psalm really is when they were stepping into Jerusalem. Because they're looking around at the gates. They're looking around at the city. They realized they were going to walk into God's presence. It was God's presence that drew them into worship. And they were to worship according to God's ways. When God saved the Israelites and brought them out of Egypt, and He met with Moses on Sinai, He didn't have a meeting where they all sat down and said, okay guys, I've just saved you. How do you feel like worshiping me? You know, what's really going to work for you? You throw out some suggestions and I'll take some suggestions. We'll throw it in a hat, pick it out, see what sticks. God didn't do that. He said, let me tell you about this thing called the tabernacle. And I'm going to tell you exactly how to make it, exactly how to construct it. I'm going to tell you exactly what you're going to do there. God described their worship. So they're going to God's house, to the place of God's presence, and they're going to worship God. But then look what it says at the beginning of verse 1. I rejoiced. I rejoiced. The psalmist is excited to worship. Turn with me to Psalm 84. Just turn back a little ways. Because this is another psalm that really expresses joy in worship. Psalm 84. Listen to the way this psalmist describes the joy of worship. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts And you, do you have that kind of joy to worship God? If I'm going to be honest, I don't think I could say I always have that kind of joy. I wish I could say I wake up every morning and say, I get to worship God. God is present with me today and I'm going to worship Him today. I wish I could tell you that. I can't. 
I wish I could tell you when I look over my schedule that, that I look at it and just say, wow, look at what I get to do and I get to do this for the glory of God. That's not how I live my life. And I'm guessing, if we're all honest, that's not how we live our lives. But to know that God is present, to know that He is powerful and that He has done amazing things for us, to know that He has sent His Son to die on the cross for us, that's our call to worship. We don't need anything else. There should be a joy that wells up within us. But look at what else he says. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. They're worshiping together. This is not some lone pilgrim doing the lone pilgrim thing. Look at me and it's all about me and God and I've got this and I'm just so on fire for God. This is a man of faith gathering with other people of faith and saying, I love going to worship with all of you. We live in a very individualistic society. I think we're taught that we shouldn't need anybody else. I think even in modern Christianity, we have so emphasized our personal relationship with God. We've developed this idea that I can worship God all by myself. I don't need anybody else. Listen, there are a lot of times in Scripture where worship is described as just between one person and God. But the overwhelming majority of worship in Scripture is about coming together. We need each other. And part of the joy of worship is sharing that joy with others and hearing what God is doing in your life and in your life and in your life. And I get to praise God for what He's doing in you, not just what may or may not be going on in my own life. There is a joy in coming together. Worship is joy when we realize that God is with us and we know what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. When we lean on what we know to be true and not just on what we feel. Looking at your own life today, would you say you have a joy in day-to-day worship of God? I hope we do. Let's talk a little bit about the setting of worship. Because in verses 2 through 5, he starts talking about Jerusalem. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment. Again, I think this would have been used right as they walked into Jerusalem. And the tense or the grammar here is kind of like, ah, Jerusalem. It's like they see the city and just, ah. I'm home, Jerusalem, I'm here to worship. And then the author starts talking about things that have to do with Jerusalem. And the first thing he says is, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. Men, if you're you know, wanting to get a, on the good side of a woman, be like, man, you, you just look like you're closely compacted together. It's really, really romantic there. No, don't, don't do that. This is not a phrase I would use in worship. If I'm thinking about the place where we meet here, this church, I don't know if I'd say, wow, we're just closely compacted together. Praise God, that's great. What did they mean by this? Some authors actually think they're specifically talking about the wall. It's this idea of a city that is secure because it's gathered together and has a strong wall around it. There's a security there. So it's not just that they were efficient with their space. That's not what he's praising God for. This is strength. Those cities on a hill, the fortified cities represented strength in a chaotic world. 
And so they're praising God for that strength that Jerusalem has been made strong by God. But why? What is it that gives it strength? It's because God's presence is there. That was the ultimate strength of Jerusalem. It wasn't first and foremost about a wall. It was about the fact that God was with them. But it wasn't just the place, it was also about the people. The people of Israel, scattered around the nation, were to gather at least three times a year to go up to Jerusalem, to the temple, together. Together. Could you imagine that picture? All the individual towns and all the paths to the different towns and and a little couple families here and a couple families here and then they join together and there's a bigger group and then they join with this group and this group and eventually you have a crowd moving into Jerusalem. There is something to be said for realizing that we are not alone. We are part of the people of God. We need to know that. They came together to worship. And they came together to worship according to the statute given to Israel. God had told them how and when to come together. Worship in Scripture is a command, not merely a response. It's a command. The praise is commanded. Worship cannot, should not rely on our feelings. Now, You might think, wait a minute, isn't that hypocritical? I mean, if I'm coming to worship and I'm singing these songs and I'm not feeling it in my heart right now, I'm just being a hypocrite. Let's talk about the definition of hypocrisy. You see, we think it's hypocritical to act in a way that you don't feel. That's the modern definition of hypocrisy. True hypocrisy is acting in a way that is out of line with what you believe. Do you see the difference there? We say, well, if I don't feel it, but I still do it, I'm a hypocrite. Now think about this for a second. If I know, if I believe Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, came down from heaven, was born in a manger, lived among us, suffered and died on the cross in my place and ascended into heaven and eternally reigns right now at the right hand of God the Father and is coming back to take us home to be with him forever. If I know that and I believe that, but right now I just don't feel like it. So I can't worship because I just don't feel like it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. So you're saying, even though all of that is true, you can't worship God? See, that's hypocrisy. It's acting in a way that's out of line with what we believe. Eugene Peterson put it this way, we live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Let me say that again. We can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. Worship is commanded in Scripture, whether we feel like it or not. I believe, and I think I can say this based on my experience working with youth, we are raising generations to follow their feelings. Feelings lie. 
They lie constantly. They become a distraction. And so we say, if I don't feel like reading my Bible, if I don't feel like praying, if I'm not really feeling this song, or I don't feel that sermon, I don't feel this building, I don't feel this church, well then I shouldn't be there because that would be hypocrisy. God's Word says this is truth. Worship is a response to truth, not to feeling. And God knows something we don't. A lot of some things we don't. He knows that by participating in authentic, truth-driven worship, feelings will follow. We worship out of obedience, not just out of feeling. And so God built into, He commanded three times a year for the Israelites to go up. Find this in Leviticus 23, if you want to look there later. But I'll tell you a little bit about these three festivals. The first in early spring was the Festival of Unleavened Bread. This followed Passover. Passover was the time of celebrating, remembering, worshiping the God who delivered them out of Egypt. That God had created this amazing but difficult miracle where he went through and he took the firstborn child of all the Egyptians. But he passed over and saved the Israelites. Now that's harsh if you don't know the rest of the story and the multiple, multiple time after time warnings that God had given the people, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And they said, no, no, we don't have to listen to you. And so the Israelites remembered. In later spring, they celebrated the festival of weeks, also known as Pentecost, following the offering of, of kind of the early first fruits, the crops of early spring. They're saying God is blessing us. He's blessed us with this food. We want to praise Him and worship Him. It was a time of remembering that they were slaves in Egypt and God had saved them. And then in the fall, the festival of tabernacles, which followed the Day of Atonement. The day when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies to the very presence of God and there applied the blood of the sacrifice that saved them from their sins. And annually, they would gather together and say, God, you alone save us. Think about that. All three festivals were a recognition of what God had done in the past, what God is doing right now in the day-to-day affairs of their lives, and were an expression of trust. In the calendar of the Israelites, God built in worship. How many of you look at your calendar and your daily schedules as a reminder to worship God. That's the way our God works. And I love that not only was it this recognition of these huge past things that God had done, but it was right now, hey, look at the crops that God gave you right now. Praise Him for it, because the same God that delivered you out of Egypt did that for you now. How often do we accept Jesus Christ? Maybe come and give a public testimony, maybe a baptism. Oh, I've been saved by Christ. And then 10 years go by, 15 years go by. And we go through situations in our day-to-day life and we forget that God is with us right now. Worship is a day-to-day affair based on who God has been and what He's done and what He's doing right now. Jerusalem was also the place of the throne of David. 
the throne in this context wasn't just about ruling. It was a place for God's judgment, God's decrees to be proclaimed. The king of, of Israel wasn't to just sit there or sit there and have people bring cases to him and say, well, I think this, I think this. The king was to take the word of God and apply it to the people. So to mention the throne of judgment was to talk about God guiding his people through the king, but through the word. Turn with me to Luke 1. Luke chapter 1. Because as these pilgrims enter Jerusalem, they're amazed as they dwell upon and think upon the fact that this is the place where the high King David reigns and where his ancestors would reign. This was a big deal to the Israelites. It was a fulfillment of a promise of God. And then we come to a young lady named Mary in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. We know these words. It's the Christmas story. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. What the Israelites proclaimed as they walked into Jerusalem, the throne of David, was fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. We always have a king on the throne, appropriately, righteously proclaiming God's word and judging the world. And we can worship in light of that. So the setting of worship involves the place of God's presence. It involves the people that are coming into worship. And then it leads to prayer. Look at verses 6 through 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Worship guided by God's truth and a response to who God is and what He's done, overflows then into prayer for more worship. To the praise of your glory. We just sang about it a little bit ago. Do you pray that other people could worship? Do you pray for opportunities to worship God in your own life? That's what the psalmist is doing here. Look, I would guess... In this writer's life at this time, there were all sorts of things he could have asked for prayer for. But he's saying, I want to pray that worship of God would be magnified and increased. He specifically talks about peace and security. Look at the repetition in verses 6 through 8. Peace and security repeated over and over again. Peace here is the Hebrew word shalom. You've probably heard of it. It's a common word in, in uh common Hebrew word that people might be familiar with, shalom. And I've talked about this before. We have a, what I would call a subtractive sense of peace. Here's my life and there's crisis and hardship and joys and, and laughter and, and here it is. And peace would be if God would reach in and take out all the bad stuff. And then what's left is peace. That's subtractive peace. Scripture, I believe, is much more of an additive peace. Let me explain what I mean by that. Here's our life, good, bad, ugly. And added to that is God's reign, God's justice, and God's will. 
Some of the crisis is still there. The struggles are still there. But the Hebrew concept of shalom is not sipping some tropical drink by the beach and not having a care in the world. The Hebrew concept of shalom is on a boat in the middle of the storm with the wind and the waves bashing against us and saying, I know my God has this. He is in control. It doesn't necessarily take the storm away. It's a recognition that God is present and in control, which leads into the security. See, again, we think of security as sort of a a metal wall and nothing will hit us. I'm secure. Security here is more about well-being. It's God is providing for me. He has given me what I need. God is in control. So this shalom and this security together is about God and His strength protecting us and His will and His righteousness at work. And so based on this peace and the security, the psalmist is praying for the place of worship for Jerusalem and for the people. Look at what he says. He says he's praying for, at the end of verse 8, for the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace be within you. The psalmist realizes other people need to worship God. You have people in your life, I hope that you're praying, will one day come to worship God. And that involves being saved by Jesus Christ, walking in obedience, coming to church and being part of the family of faith and living in obedience to Him and one day being with Him forever. I hope you're praying for them. But do you also understand that your worship of God is also for their sake? You become a beacon for them. You become like somebody standing on the corner pointing up like this and they're going, what are you pointing at? And say, look, that's my Jesus for the sake of my family and friends. He also says in verse 9, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, for God's glory, I will live day in and day out, even in the difficult mundane steps, I will live for His glory. I will worship. Are you walking in worship this morning? Every moment of your life, every tick of the second hand on a clock, is a call to worship. Because God is always who He says He is. God has always done what He said He's done. Salvation is always available. Jesus Christ is always on His throne. Those things never change. That's what our worship depends on. Situations of our life will change. Feelings of our heart, feelings of thanksgiving and appreciation, those may come and go. Worship does not depend upon them. Walk. In worship. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. These pilgrims walking to Jerusalem looked up the hill and as they stood in the gate, they looked down the streets and they knew the temple was out there. They knew the presence of God was there and they were so overjoyed. We're here. Guess what? You're here. And I don't mean this room. I mean Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. But take it a step further. The Bible promises that every believer, everyone saved by grace through faith, has the Holy Spirit in our very lives. God's presence is with you every second. You don't have to take a pilgrimage to some city on a hill. You don't even have to come into this room to worship God. Oh, we get to do this together. But every moment of your life, God is present with you. And every time you 
respond to that. You act in faith because God is with you. You give Him the glory and the thanksgiving. You are worshiping. One day, the Bible says, the entire earth will become the house of the Lord. That's my understanding of the last couple chapters of of Revelation. We studied it in the Revelation series. The language there is very clear. It's the same language used in the tabernacle and the temple and all the way back to creation. The whole earth is going to be the dwelling place of God and we're going to be right here with Him. We're going to be worshiping forever. And I'm not talking about sitting around on, on clouds and strumming harps and singing songs. That's too narrow a definition of worship. I mean living, being the people God made us to be and doing it all for His glory forever and ever. That's worship. We get to practice now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are people that are easily distracted. And Father, we are people that are easily overcome. And we trust in feelings that lie to us. And we put stock in situations of this world and we fail to see, to recognize, and to give you the credit that you are sovereignly at work. And so, Father, too often we miss those common everyday moments of worship because our focus is in the wrong place. And so I pray, may we live every day with the knowledge that we have been called for worship. You have made that worship possible. You have equipped us for worship. You have sent Your Son to save us. Your Spirit is actively at work within us and present with us at all times. God, I don't know what these people will face tomorrow. I don't know what I'll face tomorrow or even in the moments after this worship service. But I know in that moment You are present and therefore it is an opportunity for worship. May we walk in worship together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.